I'm an alcoholic and my name is Chuck. <laughs> I want to tell you right up front that uh, after hearing all about Scott's talk last night, I feel like one of Elizabeth Taylor's new husbands. I, <clears throat> I know what's expected of me, I just don't know how to make it interesting. <laughs> My son called me last that night when we were having dinner and he said, Dad, I want you to know I just got off the golf course and it's 88 degrees here. <laughs> I said, Son, I want you to know your sisters just inherited your part of the estate. <laughs> Before I forget, I want to uh, thank my friend David. Uh, for hauling me around and, and seeing Donna again and Morris. I've got those names out of the way. I just made $20. And, uh, and when I called here and I was told what the weather was like, through Gordy came the message uh, from Debbie. And, of course, anything good out of Gordy comes from Debbie. <laughs> and she said, don't let the weather bother you. The warm hearts will make up for it. And that is so true. Uh, I heard a story she was telling about Gordy. He said many years ago, uh, he told her he was going down and get his pension. And she said, Gordy, you're not old enough yet to get your pension. So he came home a few hours later and he was waving this check in front of her with a, to show off. And she said, how did you do that? He said, well, I went down to the pension place and I waited around till this very young girl wasn't busy. And I went over and I sat at her desk and I opened my shirt and I showed her the gray hairs and I got my check. She said, well, why didn't you drop your pants and get total disability? Why <laughs> We'll be looking for a ride to the airport tomorrow. <laughs> it never ceases to amaze me. The one person I miss the most here today is Don N. from Moorhead, Minnesota. He is uh, in KL, Malaysia right now. And normally we would meet each other in Thailand. We've done that for eight or nine years. And I tell you, I used to think going to Thailand was to any lengths and going to the Philippines and risking hijacking and uh, kidnapping and all was a, the furthest lengths, but you folks just jumped into number one place. Uh, but this is delightful, it really is. I would like to uh, welcome the newcomers that might be here this morning. And if you're wondering if you should be here, uh, I would rather be in this room by mistake than sitting in some bar by mistake. And if you will continue to come to these meetings and do the things that we have suggested and those before you suggest, such as read the book, go to meetings, talk to other alcoholics, and lately <clears throat> I've added, try not to drink between meetings. <laughs> I feel that we forget to tell newcomers that this is a non-drinking society. <laughs> and it works better if you don't drink. And if you do that long enough, I can't guarantee you that Alcoholics Anonymous will open the gates of heaven and let you in. But it will open the gates of hell and let you out. And that's all I was looking for when I got here and I didn't know it. And all the things I can talk about today, the one thing that I can assure you is that you may not have had your last drink, but you've enjoyed your last drink. So you may as well just stay here and get it over with. If you're an addict, we, we welcome you. I was at a meeting the other night and an addict shared, which uh, kind of ticked me off. But uh, that's happened before. But if you sit in these rooms long enough, somebody next to you will infect you with alcoholism. <laughs> so if you don't want to be an alcoholic, then you better quit coming to meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's contagious. 
but it is the safest place you can be and it may save your life. If you're here because somebody else has made you come, in the States we have things called court cards, and I don't even know if you have them here, but I tell people there, do not look at that as a punishment. Look at that court card or whatever you bring here as a gift certificate, because somebody thinks more of you than you think of yourself, and they're sending you to the only possible place that they know that you might be able to get help on your alcoholism. If you're sitting out here and you're wondering if you're an alcoholic, and you're one of those people that you spend money you don't have to buy things you don't need to impress people you don't like, (laughs) chances are you're an alcoholic. (laughs) And if you're also one of those folks that if one's good, two's better, And if you can still get it on credit, you'll take four. I know you're an alcoholic. (laughs) So you just keep coming to these rooms. My grand sponsor was a judge, lawyer type. And uh, he told me a story many years ago about how he got to Alcoholics Anonymous. And for those of you here on the court system or penal system, I'll share it with you. Bob promised his wife several times he wouldn't drink anymore. And on one of those occasions, Bob went two whole weeks without drinking. And on his way home one night from the courts, he saw his favorite gin mill. And he pulled in to have just one drink, and he woke up several hours later, and he had thrown up all over his nice suit. And driving home, he had no idea what he would tell his wife when he got there. And she met him with those cold, beady, little Al-Anon eyes that... We've all had to look at it one time or another. And she said, Bob, for God's sake, it's only been two weeks and you promised me that you would not drink anymore and look at you. You're drunk and you stink. He said, but it's not the way it appears. He said, looked her straight into those eyes. He said, on the way home tonight, it was pouring down rain. It was cold and wet. And I saw this young man hitchhiking and I felt sorry for him and I got to get stopped to give him a ride, and I didn't know he was drunk. And he got in the car, and he got sick, and he threw up all over me. (laughs) But I took care of him. I took him down to the jail, and I had him locked up, and I'll deal with him first thing in the morning. She bought that story. And the next morning, Bob's sitting in his chambers, and the phone rang, and it was his wife. And she said, Bob, have you seen that young man that uh, threw up all over you last night? And Bob thought real quickly, and he said, No, dear, but he's the first one on the docket, and I've already decided I'm going to give him 30 days. She said, Bob, I think you better give him 90 days because he crapped in your pants, too. (laughs) Well, it's not how you get here that matters. It's what you do after you get here. I have to tell a quick story about Al-Anon because I've always loved them and uh, thought about where they came from and what they go through. And I was at a big meeting one time, a company meeting, and a man was giving a talk and he was trying to convey how one thing can have two different opposite thoughts or meanings. And he said he came home from a business trip and when he walked in the front door, He was running late, and he could tell his wife was upset, and she was nicely dressed in a gown, and she said, I guess you forgot we had this big formal dinner to go to tonight, so you run upstairs and get changed real quick, and I'll get the car and bring it around, and it was snowing like it is here, and he rushed upstairs, and he came down, and she's standing at the side of the house outside the car, and she had locked the keys in it. And he looked at her and he says, you know, it it really astonishes me. I can never figure out how God made you so beautiful and so dumb at the same time. She said, well, I can answer that. He made me beautiful so you would love me and stupid so I would love you. (laughs) Well, that just answered everything about Alamon that I ever needed to know. This morning I'm to share with you what it used to be like, what happened, and why it hasn't changed a hell of a lot. 
I was born sober <laughs> into a Southern Baptist family. And my grandmother passed away, and she raised me, and she passed away when I was about 12. And I was taken in by a Jewish Orthodox family, and they sent me to a Catholic military school. <laughs> Until I got to you folks, I had prayed to whom it may concern all my life. <laughs> but that's not the reason <clears throat> I became an alcoholic. I became an alcoholic because I started drinking alcohol. And I like to make that very clear these days because there's a lot of folks that come here and after they're here a while they decide that they would rather go out and join another outfit that they can blame somebody else because of their problems. And a lot of them never make it back. So I have to remember for me that I'm an alcoholic because I drank too much too often and for too long of a period of time. And I never want to forget <clears throat> the very first drink that I ever took. I had already finished school and I was home on leave from the Air Force and I'd gone to a theater and it was late and on the way home that night I decided to stop at a private club my family belonged to. <clears throat> and I walked in and I went straight into the bar and I sat down and I ordered a bottle of beer. Now, the bartender that was on duty that night had known me all my life. And he looked at me and he said, Mr. Charles, have you started drinking since you left home? And I said, no, John, I've never had a drink in my life. But tonight, I'm just going to have one bottle of beer. And he gave me a Miller's High Life and I picked it up. And I drank it as fast as I possibly could because I was afraid somebody might come in and see me drinking. Now the reason I need to remember that drink that night so vividly this morning, sitting at that bar, I had no marital problems. I wasn't even married. I had no job problems because I was doing exactly what I had wanted to do ever since I was a teenager, and I'd gone to one of the best military schools in the world to get ready for it, and I had no financial problems. And sitting there that night for no reason whatsoever, I blew almost 22 years of total sobriety. And I know standing here today, I could do that same thing all over again. Because it's not when everything is coming down on me that I have the fear of drinking again. It's when everything seems to be going okay. It's when she's okay and the kids are okay and the work is okay. I get that stinking thinking that just maybe that last drunk wasn't quite that bad. So I have to go to meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous almost on a daily basis so I can see and hear what happens to people that don't go to meetings. Now I know as long as I have been sober intellectually, I only need one meeting a week. My problem is I don't know which one it is. <laughs> and I wouldn't want to pick the wrong meeting and end up drunk again. So I go to meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous almost on a daily basis. And I have started looking at these meetings, these rooms I go into like my big fort. And the people that go outside my fort and drink again are my scouts. And those scouts keep running back in my fort with an ass full of arrows and say those Indians are still out there. <laughs> Now that's American Indians, don't get, I don't want anybody to take me out and hang me after this. <laughs> so I have to stay close to active in and a part of this fellowship. I had a friend, I have a friend, he's 80 years old, he got here, he was 20 years sober last Halloween, so he wasn't a kid when he got here. And he called me one Wednesday night. He knew I would be coming home from my Wednesday night Laguna meeting, and 
He was very upset, and I said, Jim, what's wrong? He said, Chuck, he said, a guy in our group got drunk. And I said, Jim, people in groups get drunk all the time. What's the problem? He said, well, he was 42 years sober, and he got my attention. And I said, well, did you talk to him? He said, yes. And I, I said, what did he tell you? And the answer that he gave Jim was so profound, I share it with you. He said, Jim, the reason I got drunk is because I had too many years and not enough days in Alcoholics Anonymous. So I have to stay close to, active in, and a part of this fellowship. I have a lot of friends back home that uh, have gone back out after long periods of time. And it's caused me to be concerned because a lot of them don't make it back. And I recall a, a sitting that I had with my sponsor when I was just a few months or weeks sober or whatever. And, and in those days, we used to always be in groups after meetings. But that particular night, it was just the two of us. And evidently, Frank must have gone speaking, and I went with him. And we were sitting in this coffee shop. And he said, Chuck, I want to share something with you that was shared with me. He said, we have alcoholism. We suffer from an allergy of the body coupled with an obsession of the mind in a spiritual void. I am so grateful nobody told me I had a disease. I guess disease came in around the early 70s when the insurance companies could pick up the tab, and that's wonderful. But when it was explained to me that I had an allergy of the body coupled with an obsession of the mind and a spiritual void, and he said, you have not had anything to drink for a while, so you no longer have an allergy of the body. Therefore... And he liked to use the word therefore because he's a lawyer and he can charge you. <laughs> he said, therefore, the next drink that you ever take will be right up here. You will think your next drink. And if you're not close to, active in, and a part of this fellowship... It may take a day, it may take a week, or it may take a month, but you will eventually take the second drink. And that's the one that will be poured and you will swallow it, and it will reactivate the allergy of the body, and it may take you a week, a month, a year, or forever before you might ever find your way back to Alcoholics Anonymous or die. The other thing I was thinking about because... I dwell so much on those first two things that a lot of these people leaving leave between five and ten years, it seems. And I think what happens is that we get complacent. We start complaining about the meeting, about the chairman, about the coffee, about the speaker, or whatever. And we're in that spiritual void and we can't identify it because alcohol always took care of that. You see, I got religion and spirituality confused. I thought they were synonymous. And then I had a former Baptist preacher lay it out very well for me. He said, in his opinion, religion was man's effort to prove to God how good they are. And spirituality is the humbleness to allow God to show you how good he is. And when I found that out, I realized that the spiritual void that we go through is because we're either doing things we don't want to do or we're doing things we shouldn't do. And I have to lock in on the meeting. And the other thing I truly believe today is that in order to come to Alcoholics Anonymous and become sober and happy, and that happy is very important to me, we have to take all of the 12 steps. And in order to stay here and be sober and happy, we have to practice that 12th step on a daily basis. 
I have been in meetings this large and much smaller, and I have asked how many people have made a 12-step call. And it is amazing how many times not one single hand will go up. In order for me to keep this thing, I have got to give it away. But I can't give something away I don't have no more than I can come back from some place I haven't been. So I have to stay close to, active in, and a part of this fellowship on a daily basis. I don't know when I took the next drink, but I know it wasn't that night, it was the next day or two. And when I took that second drink, it was like letting old midnight out of shoot number nine at a rodeo. <laughs> and I drank myself right up to what I call for me my death march into Alcoholics Anonymous. <clears throat> this time of the year really has a tender significance for me. Because I locked my office door on December the 22nd to go home for the Christmas and New Year holidays. And the next conscious thing I could remember, I was driving to my office and it was January the 5th. And I was approaching a red light not far from my house and my leg was shaking so badly I had to use my left foot to brake the car. And I turned around and I went back to my house and I walked in and I took down a bottle of vodka and I set it on the counter and I had to make one of the biggest decisions I'd ever made because I had never taken a drink on a work morning in my life. And I stood there and I stared at that bottle of vodka and I was looking at a littler bottle next to it that was filled with Valium because I had a doctor at that time that thought alcoholism was caused by a Valium deficiency. <laughs> I still have that doctor today, but his thinking's a lot different. <laughs> and I didn't want to get hooked on those funny little pills, so I took the drink. And thank God that first drink stayed down that morning because there had been a lot of Saturday and Sundays and holidays that that first drink in the morning didn't stay down. And the leg quit shaking, the stomach felt better, the head seemed to clear up. And I got in my car and I drove to my office and I went upstairs and I told my staff what a fantastic holiday I had. And I hope they had one just as good and I could not remember 15 minutes from the time I locked that office door on December 22nd till that morning. Everything seemed okay till about 10 o'clock and my secretary brought in some documents that needed my signature and <clears throat> she noticed my hand was shaking so badly that there was no way I could sign those papers in such a manner that she would allow them to leave the office. And I told her I would do them later and I left and I went home and had several drinks and came back signed those papers without any problem whatsoever. I went to lunch that day and I had my normal lunch. I had a couple of drinks and I ate lunch and I went back to the office. But a few days later, still going back to that house to drink before I would go into my office, I found myself going to lunch just a little bit earlier, having just a few more drinks. And pretty soon I would say the heck with lunch and I'd go back to work. And after a few more days of that, I found myself going to lunch a lot earlier, having a lot of drinks. And then I would say the heck with lunch and the heck with going back to work. And it hit me just that fast. And I did that kind of drinking all the way through the month of January. And on February the 1st, I walked in my office about 7 in the morning and the phone was already ringing. And I picked it up and it was my boss <coughs> calling from Dearborn, Michigan. And he proceeded to tell me I had a drinking problem. And I had 30 days to do something about it. And if I didn't, it could be grounds for termination. And I told that man in no uncertain terms that nobody that far away that only saw me once, maybe twice a year, could call me on a telephone and tell me I had a drinking problem, let alone threaten to fire me over it. And I hung up on him. <laughs> By that time, my secretary had come in 
And I told her I'd be back in a few minutes, and she knew that could be anything from a half hour to a half a day. And as I went to get in my car in the parking lot, it was ironic, but an acquaintance of mine at the Santa Ana Elks Lodge had saw fit to let me know that he had taken over a cocktail lounge not far from my office, and it normally opened at 10 o'clock in the morning, but he was going to start opening about 6 or 6.30 a.m., should I ever have a need to come by. And that's where I was headed, down to see Harry. And as I was driving down to Harry's place, it suddenly occurred to me that my very best friend, Alcohol, had just turned on me. The very thing that had helped me put up with that woman, raise those kids, work in that corporate structure, and put up with them. And if you don't know who them are, you may not be alcoholic, because we know who them are. (laughs) The very thing that had helped me through all of that had just turned on me, and I couldn't handle it. I felt just like a blind man that was walked into a telephone pole by a seeing-eye dog. He reached in his pocket and he pulled out a cookie and he handed it to the dog and a gentleman next to him said, Mr. I don't understand. That dog just walked you into that telephone pole and you're rewarding him with a cookie. He says, no, you don't understand. I'm giving him the cookie to see where his head is so I can kick him in the ass. (laughs) That's what alcohol did to me. Right when I needed it the worst, it kicked me right in the rear end. I got down to Harry's and I walked in and I sat down and I told Harry what my boss had said to me. Now Harry's version of my pressures and my responsibilities and my accomplishments was so much better than my boss's version. I just sat and listened to Harry all day. I didn't have to go back to that office and put up with that crap. But I had to go back the next day. And I knew the heat was on and I knew they'd be checking on me. And I had to alter my daily routine and the first thing I had to do was the hardest. And that was to cut my lunch hours from four hours down to two. But we do what we have to do when that heat's on. And I did that kind of controlled drinking all the way through the month of February. March came, nothing happened. I didn't get fired. I didn't even get any threatening phone calls. And in my sick mind, I got the idea that if you worked for a company as big as I did, and if you held a position such as I, they wouldn't dare fire you over alcohol unless you admitted to somebody you had a drinking problem. So all I had to do was just make sure that I never told anybody that alcohol or drinking was a problem in my life, and I loosened up. And about midway into March, I came back from lunch one day, and the private line on my phone rang, and I picked it up. And it was a dear friend of mine whose office was down the hall from me, and he ran a different division than I did, but we were very close. And he asked me if I'd step down there, he'd like to chat with me a minute. And I went down to Ray's office, and when I walked in, he stood up and he looked at me. And he said, Chuck, I just came back from Dearborn, and they're talking about you. And if you don't do something about your drinking and do it fast, they're going to fire you. They don't care how fast you've progressed. They don't care how much you've done for the company. And they don't even care how much potential you might have left. They can't afford to have you around anymore. And I looked at my friend and I told him in no uncertain terms to mind his own business. And if he was concerned about people with drinking problems, he had enough of them in his own division. And he probably wouldn't have to leave his own office to find one. And I walked out and I slammed his door. When I got home that night, something strange happened because I told my then wife what Ray had said. But I didn't see fit to let her know that my own boss had called me six weeks prior and had given me a 30-day ultimatum. And she looked up at me that night with the saddest eyes I had ever seen on her face up until that day. 
And she said, but you don't drink that much. Now, standing there that evening looking at me, she may not have had any idea that I went back to that house to drink every morning after she left to go to her office. And she may not have known that I took anywhere from two to four hours for lunch every day and I'd sit at my club and drink. And I'm sure standing there she had no idea that I didn't work until seven every night, but I would leave my office at about four. And I would go to one of my favorite two watering holes and I would sit there and drink until seven. And when I got home and I passed out in my chair, it wasn't from a hard day at the office. But standing there that evening, she knew she was going through my second drunk driving with me. And I'd gotten the last one about ten months prior. And I had been on my way to Santa Ana High School to see my son run in a CIF track meet. And on the way to that school, I totally passed out behind the wheel of my car. And I ran a main boulevard stop in downtown Santa Ana. And when the police came and they handcuffed me and they hauled me to jail, they found at 1 o'clock in the afternoon, I had a .36 blood alcohol content, and she knew that. She knew when I got out of jail that night, I called my insurance broker, and I told him I'd run a boulevard stop, and I had hit a tree, and I'd wrecked my car rather badly. And he came by my office the next morning and he closed my door and he looked at me and he said, Chuck, you didn't hit a tree, you hit a woman. And she knew that. She knew that previous Christmas we were at the Elks to have Christmas dinner and just as they set the food on the table, I yanked her out of her chair and I said, we're not having dinner with all these phonies. And there was a prominent attorney across the table, and I looked at him, and I said, and you're the biggest phony here, because if a person does not have money, property, or prestige, you won't represent them. And I looked at his wife, and I said, and I don't know how you have been married to this fat pig for over 25 years. And I drugged her out of that club. I want to tell you, it took me years in this fellowship to go back to that man and make amends. And when I did, he looked at me and he said, Chuck, I was so drunk that night, I don't remember a thing you said. (laughs) And his wife was too much of a lady to ever tell him. But to make up for it, my sponsor and I have made 12-step calls on four of his brothers, and they're all sober in AA. She... uh, She also knew standing there that night that that same club would have to call her three or four nights a week to come and take her drunken husband home. Because I would be too drunk to get from the bar stool out to the parking lot. And those nights I could get to the parking lot and drive home, she would have to come out to the driveway and help me in the house so that my children would not see their father so drunk. I couldn't even walk in the house without falling down. But more vivid in her mind that night that she shared with me later were the nights that were becoming more frequent in that house that possibly only spouses of of alcoholics would really understand. And that's the nights that were just becoming too quiet. And she would come looking for me. And inevitably she would find me sitting in my study with a shotgun to my stomach or a pistol in my mouth, fully loaded with a hammer back and my finger on the trigger, mumbling some kind of a prayer that I might be able to fire that gun so I wouldn't have to go back out there one more day and face life on life's terms. I can tell you that I am so grateful I never pulled that trigger because if I had, I would have killed the wrong person. Because I am not the same man standing here today that was sitting in that chair with that gun in his mouth. And I have found out over the years by going to a lot of AA meetings and listening that suicide is a permanent solution to a temporary problem. But that night, she said the only thing she could possibly say. Because if she had have admitted that she knew I drank that much, she would have also been admitting that she was as sick, if not sicker, than I was. 
for staying there all of those years watching me kill myself one day at a time. After I'd been sober a while, she asked me what I thought an alcoholic was. I said, there's a lot of definitions floating around. I heard one recently. I love it. It says, alcoholics are people that burn bridges in front of them. (laughs) And we certainly do that. But I told her I had made up my own definition for an alcoholic of my type. An alcoholic of my type is a person that drinks to solve problems that are caused by drinking. She said, in that case, you've been an alcoholic for over four years. Because for over four years, you have been sitting in bars drinking, trying to solve problems that were caused because you are sitting in bars drinking. Well, I knew she knew, even if she wouldn't admit she knew. And I couldn't go back home and drink anymore, so I had to make do something I had never done before on the way to the office. I stopped at a liquor store. And I knew the owner of that store, but I had no idea that he would be there that early. And I walked in, and there he was, standing behind the counter. And there was no way I was going to leave that store without a bottle. And I told him I had a friend in the hospital that asked me to bring him a little bottle of vodka. But I didn't know what brand he drank. And without even looking, he reached behind him and he took a bottle off the shelf and he sat it between us and looked me straight in the face. And he said, Chuck, I think this will suit your friend fine. And to make it look good, I got some ice and some cups and some orange juice and I put it all in a brown bag and I got in my car and I drove to my office and I sat in the parking lot and I drank it. A few mornings later, I was back in his store, and he was there again. But that morning, I bought a bigger bottle of vodka. And I took the cap off that bottle, and I threw it right in the trash. And I turned the bottle right up to my mouth. And when I got my change, I got in my car, and I drove down Tustin Avenue, a main street connecting Santa Ana and Tustin, where my office was located at that time, and I was passing people that I did business with on a daily basis. And I could care less if they saw me with that bottle up to my mouth. Because I wasn't drinking it anymore because I liked it. I wasn't drinking it anymore because it tasted good. And I wasn't drinking it anymore because I wanted it. I was drinking it because I had to have it to get from over here to over there. And it was only 14 blocks. And even though I was running a multi-million dollar business, my biggest decision that I had to make every day was early in the morning sitting in that parking lot when I had to decide if I should drink all that bottle then or if I should save some in case something happened that I couldn't get out to get another one. One morning, I found myself holding that bottle with everything I had in me, praying to a God that I didn't even understand to just let me die in that car, to just let somebody that worked for me come to work and find me dead so I wouldn't have to go back up those stairs one more day and face the humiliation that I had come to know. Because every time my boss would call or somebody needed a big decision made, I would get nervous and I would start gagging and throwing up. And sometimes I would make it out to the men's room, sometimes I would make it to the lobby, but most of the time I couldn't even make it out of my own office. Ironically, when I started drinking, I thought it was heavenly and I found hell. I drank because I thought it would make me free, and I became a slave to alcohol. And there at the end, I was drinking in order to cope. And here I was sitting in a car, asking God to let me die. Sitting in that car that morning, I had reached 
the most pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization that any man of my type could ever reach. I had lost everything that was near and dear to me. And that had nothing to do with homes or jobs or cars or bank accounts. What it had to do with was my insides, my integrity, my honesty, my ambition. All of the things that built the character up in me that allowed me as a young man to excel where I excelled to. And sitting in that car, all I ever wanted to do was to be a good dad and a good husband and a good citizen and all I cared about was where am I going to get my next drink. And the worst of all, as I was sitting there with a body that wouldn't die, carrying around a mind that couldn't function. And it just don't get any worse than that. God <clears throat> didn't see fit for me to die. He saw fit that I should go up those stairs just a couple of more days. And I came back from lunch one day, and a few minutes later, <clears throat> my boss walked in, unannounced, uninvited, unwanted. <laughs> and I knew good and well he wasn't there to promote me. <laughs> and he said that Ray was out of town again, and should we should walk down to his office, it would be more private. And as we walked down to Ray's office, <clears throat> I walked in and I sat down at the desk and as my boss was closing the door, he said, Chuck, why didn't you do something about your problem? And I said, what problem? And he got very angry. He said, your damn drinking problem, man, you're drunk now, I can smell it. And I knew that he had flown all the way out there to try to bluff me one more time because all I ever drank in the daytime was vodka and you know you can't smell vodka. <laughs> A lot of vodka drinkers out there. <clears throat> he sat down at the desk across from me and his voice mellowed and he said, why? Why did you make it necessary for me to come all this way to fire you? I waited through the month of uh, February and nothing happened. I waited into March and I saw Ray at the home office and I knew how much you admired and respected him and I asked him if he would talk to you when he got back to California and he said he would and he did and I waited. And I've waited into April and I just can't wait any longer and he opened his briefcase and he took out some documents and laid them on the desk between us and he said, these are your termination papers and this is your stock in the company. But I want you to know that all you have to do right this minute is tell me you want help. And I have the authority to put these papers away and take you anywhere as you want to go to get it. If you're new today and you don't understand the insanity <clears throat> that we talk about, I will share mine with you. Sitting there looking at those papers I had ever worked for in my life was on the line. I knew it would only be a matter of weeks that my family would leave me. And it would only be a matter of weeks that I would be in total financial bankruptcy. And in my career field, that would be job suicide. And before I would admit to that man I had a drinking problem, <clears throat> I pulled those papers in front of me and I signed away everything I'd ever worked for in my life. Looking somewhat shocked. He put the papers away and he said he would meet me the next morning and I could clean out my office and not be embarrassed in front of my staff. Evidently, I must have met him because I was told later my car was found in the driveway of my house with all my personal effects. About 6.30 that evening, I came to and I was sitting in my chair in my study and I was as coherent as I could possibly be with as much alcohol as I had in my system and I was trying to decide if I should keep an appointment. And something was happening to me, and I didn't know what it was then, but I know what it is today. What was happening is I was having what we call a moment of clarity. And I truly believe that every alcoholic has a moment of clarity. And what I believe that really is, it's a time, be it ever so brief, maybe a minute, maybe five, that we have to decide 
if we're going to live or if we're going to die. To God, I understand the day's really busy on this ball of dirt called Earth. There's 7.4 billion people. And I believe this. I believe if I have the will to have a good day or a bad day, or if I have the will to live or to die, he will give me the power to carry out that will. But he only wants good for me. And I'm sure he did not want me to die and he knew I needed help, so he sent my son to help. Because my son, who was almost 18 at the time, came out of his room. And in those days, that in itself was a miracle. (laughs) And he walked up to my chair and he looked down. And after a moment or two, he looked at me and he said, Dad, you've lost your job. And next to your family, it probably meant more to you than anything in this world. What are you going to lose next? And without saying another word, he turned and went back into his room. All of a sudden, I realized that I was a nobody and I was going nowhere. I don't know if I hit my bottom that night with that beautiful family and that beautiful home. And up until 24 hours before, I had a job that was the envy of hundreds of people. But I saw my bottom, and that was close enough for me. I called my then wife into the room, and I said, Is there anything left to drink in the house? She said, Why? I said, Because there's a man at the Elks in his 60s. And he's been drinking since he's been a small lad, and he hasn't had a drink for almost six months. And he went to a hospital over in Orange called Beverly Manor, and they must have a miracle there. And I need help, and I need a miracle, and I want to go. And she said, thank God. And she left the room, and she came back, and she handed me a drink. Now, if I'd have known that was going to be my last drink until today, I'd have had two. (laughs) But I didn't know. I have a lot of things to be grateful for today, but I'll tell you today that other than this program and the God that I understand and a lady in my life, that I'm more grateful for that drink than anything there is. Because if she had tried to talk me out of that drink... Or if she had a refused to give me that drink, she may have been interrupting my last drunk up until today. And I may have found it necessary over the years to go back out and finish it. And I might not have been as lucky as some of you people that have been out and you've been able to come back in again. And if you're new today and you've been around just long enough that you may have heard some jackass at a podium or somebody in a discussion meeting make the statement that the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous are always revolving or swinging. Don't you believe it? Because that is a lie. I have a few friends and several acquaintances out there today that have been here before. And they would give anything they have left or anything they may ever get in life to be able to come back through these doors and they just can't make it. When I read my big book, it tells me if I continue to drink, two things could happen. I could go insane or I could die. But there's a third thing we don't talk about too much. And that's for an alcoholic like me to go back out into those upholstered sewers and be able to sit there for a long, long time with a head full of AA and a belly full of booze, knowing that this program could work for me too one day at a time. But my pride and my ego would not allow me to come back through these rooms. In our big book, there are a group of 12 steps. And if you leave them in that book, you will surely die. But if you take them out of that book and you practice them to the best of your ability in everything you do, you'll make it. I'd like to also suggest that before you get to those steps that you might just try studying our traditions just a little bit. 
And you might be the generation that gets those traditions back in the proper place that they belong. It's kind of like playing golf. They told me when I started, they didn't care how badly I played as long as I knew the etiquette and didn't disturb other people. And that's what our traditions are based on. When I got to that hospital, I had never seen the 12 steps in my life. But that night, I took that first step as honest and as complete and as thorough as any human being could ever be asked to take it. Because when my son took me into a room called detox and got me undressed, when my head hit that pillow that night, I said, thank God it's all over. Thank God I don't have to get up in the morning and I don't have to go back out there and lie and cheat and do all the things I've had to do over the years because of alcohol. And I passed out. And I came to about a week and a half later, and I was strapped in that bed from my feet to my head. And when I opened my eyes, I was facing a door. And the first thing I saw go down the hallway was a rabbit, about five foot two, hopping down the hall. (laughs) And I let out a god-awful scream. And Annie, the nurse, came running into my room, and I told her what just went by my door. And she started laughing, and she said, but Chuck, it's Easter Sunday. (laughs) Now, I find that humorous myself today. But let me assure you, that morning... When she told me it was Easter Sunday, and the last conscious thing I remembered was locking my office to go home for Christmas. It scared the living hell out of me, and I hope I never forget that feeling as long as I live. I stayed in that hospital a long time. A lot of things happened there to save my life, but time only allows me to touch on one or two that are the most important to me. There was an old counselor there, and I say old with the utmost reverence because he became my number two uh, sponsor, and I used counselor with great reservations because John Mack was 40-some-odd years sober at the time and, and had no degrees or anything. He was just an old drunk trying to help other drunks. And I went into his office one morning, and he said, uh, you need to call your boss and tell him where you are. And I said, John, it won't do any good. He said, in that case, dummy, it won't do any harm, will it? (laughs) And I had never been called dummy in my entire life. (laughs) And I called my boss, and he said he already knew that somebody had called him, and he had tried to do something for me, but it, it couldn't be done. But he said, since you called, I'll try again. And two or three days later, he called me, and he said, Chuck, I went all the way to the president of our company, and we called the hospital, and we talked to your doctor, Max Schneider, and he explained to us this thing called alcoholism. And he convinced us that if you really want to do something about your life, you've taken the first step by checking into that hospital, and for that reason, we've torn up your termination papers, and we don't care if it takes six months or six days or whatever, your office and your job will be waiting for you when you feel capable of coming back. It took me a long time to find out the forgiveness and understanding going on by these non-alcoholics. And several years ago, I was called back to Dearborn on a think tank team, and There was 12 of us, and because of all the meetings going on at the glass house at that time, I had to, we had to meet in a room pretty much as big as this because it was for the news media. And we were sitting in this room making five-year plans for 340,000 employees talking in the billions. And one afternoon, my biggest boss's secretary came to a door about the distance of over there and She yelled across the room that I had a phone call, and it was a crazy man. (laughs) And he wouldn't hang up until he talked to me. 
And I excused myself and I was gone and I came back about 20 minutes later and my big boss looked at me and he said, did you have a problem at your office? And I said, no, sir. I said it was a friend of mine and Alcoholics Anonymous that thought he might have to drink today and he wanted to talk to me. And that man looked at me and he said, Chuck, that had to have been the most important phone call you could have ever received. And I knew it was okay. The other thing, and by the way, they, I retired from that company August the 1st of last year and they called me back before I even got my first page retirement check. And they pay me more now to do half the work and I don't want this tape to get to them. <laughs> But it allows me to come to more of these things. The other thing that man did for me, he knew I couldn't leave that hospital without a sponsor. And if you're new today and you don't know what a sponsor is, they're the ones that come in after the war is over and bayonet the wounded. Shame on me. John could have asked a hundred men to come take me to my first meeting, but he only asked one man. And I had no idea who was picking me up. And I went to the nurse's station, and he took one look at me, and he said, Welcome, Chuck. I've been saving a seat for you for eight and a half years. Frank O. Apostrophe R. was not only one of my oldest drinking friends, he was also my family attorney. And I saw him almost on a daily basis, and never once did he ever try to force me into these rooms. He took me to my first meeting, the Wednesday night Laguna meeting, which I am very active in to this day. And after that meeting, he took me to an all-night coffee shop. And in that coffee shop, he practiced the ultimate principle of Alcoholics Anonymous. And that ultimate principle is not me standing here talking to all of you. And it's not me or somebody like me standing at a large convention with several thousands of people. The ultimate principle of Alcoholics Anonymous is one drunk talking to another drunk. That's the way this thing got started. That's the way it is. And that's the way it will always be. The most beautiful reading that I believe I see in the big book or in our readings is the story of Bob and Bill calling on the third member, Bill, in the hospital. And the next morning his wife was visiting him and he saw Bob and Bill walking down the hall and he raised his arm shakingly and he pointed to them and he told his wife, those are the men who understand me. When I come into a room of Alcoholics Anonymous, evil stays outside. This is the most diversified fellowship that's anywhere in the world. I think the reason I get short when we take long smoke breaks at meetings is because the spirit of Alcoholics Anonymous comes in and you can feel it. And when they break the meeting for 15 or 20 minutes, that spirit does not seem to come back in. And sitting in that coffee shop, I felt the spirit. Sitting in that coffee shop, Frank told me his whole story. That night, he convinced me that this program would work for me too one day at a time if I wanted it. Because it's not for the people that want it, it's only or need it, but the people that want it. And if I decided that I wanted it, I should get in the program and not on the program as soon as I got out of that hospital. And if you don't know the difference of being in something or on something, you just visualize yourself on a submarine when that sucker goes under. <laughs> you would know the difference real quick. That night, <clears throat> Frank saved my life and he didn't charge me one dime. Thirty-some-odd years ago, Bob saved his life, and he didn't charge him one dime. That's why today I go anywhere within my physical or financial power to give back what you gave to me, and I have to do it for free and for fun. I got out of that hospital, and I went to my first men's meeting by myself the following Monday night. And I sat in that meeting for an hour and a half, and I heard men tell my story. And after that meeting was over, a man came up to me. <clears throat> that I used to drink with, and he 
stripped me of all my defenses because he said, Chuck, welcome. You never have to take another drink as long as you live if you don't want to. And that night I left that meeting with all the hope in the world. I was sober about six months. And I pulled up at the Elks Lodge where I had lunch with my grand sponsor and sponsor every day. And I was worried about this thing called God because I'd made the mistake of mentioning God in a meeting and John yelled across the room, there's only two things you need to know about God. There is and you ain't. Now shut up. (laughs) But I thought about him. And I pulled up at that place one beautiful October day. And I got out of that car and something strange happened because I did something I'd never done on a work day. I took my coat and tie off because they were choking me. And I threw them on the back seat and when I stepped out of that car, I felt like I was about that high off the ground. And it seemed like it took me 15 minutes to walk a distance to that wall. And I went inside and I sat down with Bob and Frank and Jack and Bill and I have no idea what was said at lunch that day, and I don't even know if I even ate lunch. And I went back to my office, and my secretary shared with me months later that I walked into my office, and I had five lines on my telephone, and all day long I would have calls coming in and calls going out. And she said for four solid hours, I didn't make one phone call out, nor did I get one call in. And I got home that night. And when I walked in the door, my son was screaming something at his mother. And he turned and he yelled something at me. And I felt my feet come down and touch the carpet. And I turned and I went into my study and I closed the door and I sat in my chair. And I cried as hard as I had ever cried in my life. Because I knew that I had spent the day with God and everything was going to be okay. I knew that I wasn't somebody bad trying to get good. I was somebody sick trying to get well. And I learned sitting in that chair that going to a lot of meetings was no excuse for not working this program. And I finally realized what Chuck said. We have to uncover, discover, and discard because we are only as sick as our secrets. We have to get that one that that little pygmy is holding on to back there behind that belly button. And we have to get it out and we have to cleanse it and have no secrets. It became very clear. A few months, I was sober a few years. And that 18-year-old son became 22 and I was speaking at a meeting in the hospital. And the phone rang. And somebody answered it, and they came to the podium, and they said, Chuck, you have an urgent call. And I went, and it was a deputy sheriff friend of mine at the Orange County Jail. And he knew where to find me because he was in the program, and he said, Chuck, we have your son here. And he stands to go to prison for a long time, and they won't release him, but I'll release him to you if you'll get here before I get off duty. And I went down to that jail as fast as I could, and I was afraid, and I was frightened, and I didn't know what to expect. And I got there, and I got my son out, and I found out because of his charges, he was so suicidal that I couldn't leave him for five minutes. And I sat home with him Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, and I told his mother Wednesday night, I said, I can't stand it, I've got to get to a meeting, and... And he came out of the room and he knew I'd be going to Laguna. And he said, Dad, can I ride with you just for the ride? And I said, sure. And his mother in her wisdom said, I'll stay home. (coughs) And driving to Laguna that night, I wasn't living there at the time. We were driving through the canyon and I shared things with that young man I'd never shared with him before. And I told him I knew that I went to a meeting every single night and I wasn't home much and I... But back before I quit drinking, I thought as long as I took care of him and his sister so well that one day he'd become 21 and we could sit at the club and we could drink and become friends. But because of AA, I hoped to God that would never happen. And we got down to Laguna that night and they had their normal 200, 250 people. And when they asked for newcomers, my son stood up and he said, my name's Chuck. 
And I'm an alcoholic and a full-blown drug addict. And when he sat down, he put his arms around me and he said, Dad, I want what you've got. Now, I don't know where he is in this program. I don't ask. But I know I haven't had to get him out of jail since that night. Everything I have, I owe to Alcoholics Anonymous. If I wanted to drink again, I would have to get back home, I hope. And I would have to get rid of my clothes, and I'd have to get rid of my wallet, and my car keys, my house keys, because they don't belong to me, they belong to you. You allow me to use those as long as I practice these principles to the best of my ability on a daily basis. Before I got here, I would have sold anything I had for one bottle of vodka, but today there's not one newcomer in Alcoholics Anonymous that doesn't mean more to me than anything I had before I got here. Chuck used to tell a story I'll share now. He used to go to Victorville to speak every year. And if you stick around a while, they call you back every year at about the same time. And he went and this man was making coffee. And he was very noticeable because he had cancer of the face. And he went back the next year and the man was making coffee in the next. And five years later, Chuck got there early. And it was just he and the man. And he got a cup of coffee and he looked at the gentleman and he said, Let me ask you, I've been coming up here for years. Doesn't anybody ever help you make coffee? And the man looked at Chuck with a tear in his eyes and he said, I thought you knew, Chuck, I'm not even an alcoholic. He said, several years ago, I was passing this building and I heard the laughter and I walked in and I sat down and it didn't take long to understand. I was in an AA meeting and after the meeting was over, I got up and I asked a group of people if I could come back that I didn't even drink. And they put their arms around me and they hugged me and they kissed me on the face and told me I was always welcome. And I've been making coffee ever since. The difference between a full life and an empty life is people and in people we find love. My favorite story in Alcoholics Anonymous is how I was able to come here and not take a drink from the go until today. And it's Chuck's story. His very first meeting in 1946 in January, he walked into a veterans hall. And he thought he was there on the wrong night because people look too good to be alcoholics like you do today. And he started to leave and a little man ran up to him and he said, Mr. Mister, were you looking for something? And Chuck, with that arrogance, turned to him and he said, well, if it interests you, sir, I was looking for sobriety. And the little man lit up like a Christmas tree and he said, take your hat and coat off, you're in the right place. When I walked in my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, I wasn't looking for her. I wasn't looking for a job. I wasn't looking for a car. All I wanted was for somebody to show me how not to drink today and be comfortable. The reason I'm standing here alive today is because a drunk took the time to come to an institution and take me to my first AA meeting. The reason I'm standing here alive today is because a drunk took the time to sit in an all-night coffee shop and tell me his story. And the real reason I'm standing here alive today is because that old drunk took the time to rock me to sleep when I wanted a drink more than I wanted anything in this world. And I'm sure as long as I keep taking the time to come back and try to give to you just a little bit of what you have so abundantly given to me, my life will always be heaped up, pressed down, and running over. And I love you all very much, and God bless you.